Firstly, you need to determine whether the trust is a foreign trust or a resident trust. Once you've made that determination and it's a foreign trust, you then have to navigate three rules, your section 97, transfer of trust rules, and section 99B, with 99B being the catch-all provision. And an amount's really only going to be excluded from 99B if it's excluded trust corpus. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 400 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Last week, we covered the general rules about foreign trust. We looked at section 99B and C and then also, of course, 95 and 97, etc. And as you know, the two most common scenarios where Section 99B comes up is overseas inheritance and migration. And so for our example, let's use an inheritance, an inheritance in New Zealand that has moved into a family trust. Now, we make this example up as we go. So we kind of twist the example as we go. We start, for example, with, I think, two beneficiaries, and then we make it three, and then two of the beneficiaries are in New Zealand and then only one beneficiary is in New Zealand. So hopefully that doesn't confuse you. So the final example we use is a New Zealand family trust that has three beneficiaries, one beneficiary in New Zealand and two beneficiaries in Australia. So here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne about distributions from a New Zealand trust to New Zealand and Australian tax residents. So let's do an example. Let's say we have a New Zealand relative who dies and puts everything into an estate, which is a trust, into a trust. The um, estate transfers everything to a trust. And then this foreign trust distributes to an Australian beneficiary. And let's use your example. Let's say a house comes into the trust in 2020 and then is sold in 2023. And the house, let's say, was worth $10 million in 2020 and it's now worth 12 million in 2023 or make it 13 million in 2023. So that means we have a capital gain of 3 million. You are saying the um, 10 million would be distributed as corpus. I agree. That sounds reasonable. I think the same it would be the same case if it was an Australian trust. But then the capital gain of 3 million would be taxable in Australia because if this foreign trust was an Australian trust, then that capital gain would also be taxable in Australia. Is that how it works? Correct. Absolutely. That's how it works. It actually gets worse than that because in that example, we've got a property uh, gifted for 10 million. It's now worth 13. It's sold. If you apply those hypotheticals, the trust would have a capital gain of 3 million on which it would pay tax. Question is, does the 50% general CGT discount apply to that $3 million? And the answer, according to the ATO, is no, it does not. You cannot apply the 50% CGT discount. The entire amount is accessible under 99 And why not? Why can't you stream capital gains? Well, you can't stream the capital gains because if you're looking at Section 97, Section 97 only applies to the net income of the trust estate. And the ATO's view is that a foreign trust that makes a capital gain on a foreign property is not included in the net income of the trust estate. And that's because of Division 855. And they've got a tax determination specifically on, on the topic, which is TD 2017 
23. So in this scenario, for example, you would want to be a resident trust because then you get the 50% CGT discount. Yeah, yeah, correct. So, and going to that residency assumption, the ATO has got another ruling about that, determination about that, which is TD 2724. So the argument is that, well, if you applied that residency assumption for the trust, this foreign trust, the hypothetical resident trust would itself be able to apply the 50% general CGT discount, which is a good argument. What the ATO say to that is that in that residency assumption, you only get the 50% CGT discount if you're a trust or an individual. The residency assumption doesn't say that. So what the ATO is doing is they're saying that, well, there's no guarantee you would get the 50% discount if you assume that the taxpayer is a resident, this hypothetical taxpayer. It's convoluted, but the point at the end of it is that if you have a resident trust deriving capital gain from offshore property, and it's distributed to a resident, you will not get any general 50% CGT discount, and the entire amount will be taxable under Section 99B, which is a horrible result. Yeah, that's a big turn of events. Correct. Five minutes ago, we were talking about being happy and merry and having everything tax-free in New Zealand, and now suddenly we are looking at CGT without a discount. Yeah, well, it's not actually CGT. You can't even use capital losses. It's a 99B assessment. So... It's not a capital gain. It's a Section 99B amount of income that has nothing to do with CGT, really. That's actually what it is. Ah, I see. Okay, good. (laughs) And let's say you said, well, let's not make a capital distribution. Let's just lend the money to an Australian resident because that way there's no distribution. So maybe we can get out of 99B that way. Unfortunately, what you run into then is Section 99C, which is a bit of a convoluted deeming provision, which in essence says that Things that are not capital distributions are treated as if they are capital distributions, including a loan from a non-resident trust to a resident beneficiary. So it's a very, very punitive section. So hold on. So 99C says things that are not capital distributions are treated as if they were capital distributions. In essence, yes. Yep. Yeah, but that would be good. Like loans. No, it's not good because it means that it's kind of like Division 7A. You can't get around the rules by saying that it's a loan, not a capital distribution. I see. And so if you have a capital distribution, it means we have CGT again. Well, we have 99B assessment, yeah. So the example of the trust, a $10 million property that sold for $13 million, and let's say it lends the money to the Australian resident beneficiary, the $13 million, well, it's going to be treated as a capital distribution, even though a capital distribution wasn't actually made, and it's going to be assessable under Section 99B. So the loan becomes a capital distribution under 99C and then becomes just a general distribution under 99B. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other situation that you may have arise is that you may not be dealing with situations where all the beneficiaries are Australian residents. And let's just continue to use the example that you posited with the trusts, the foreign trusts that um, received an inheritance of a $10 million property, which is now worth $13 million. And... This time, let's say there's two beneficiaries. Or three. Let's make it three. Let's make it three. So let's just say one of those beneficiaries is a resident and the other two are non-residents. So 99B is only ever going to apply to the resident beneficiary. And the question is, well, okay, the trust has sold, trust has been inherited a property of 10 million and it's sold it for 13 million. And it wants to say, give one third of that money to the resident beneficiary. Is there a 99B assessment in that situation? 
because well, the trust has excluded corpus of $10 million, but it also has produced some gains that would be assessable if the foreign trust was a resident. It has $10 million of excluded corpus and $3 million of, call it, non-excluded corpus. And so the question is, do you have to distribute it in even parts or can you distribute the corpus to the residents yeah. and then the gain to the non-resident? That's the question, isn't it? How can you, in what portions do you need to distribute? Yeah, and there's not a lot out there on this. There doesn't seem to be any published ATO views on it. There doesn't seem to be any cases on the issue. Do you have to follow the trust deed? Well, yeah, you have to, of course, follow the trust deed, but most trust deeds would allow you to distribute capital in whatever way you want at the ultimate discretion of the trustee, and it could be some to one person, none to the other, so on and so forth. If you had a trust that was more prescriptive, you would probably have to follow whatever those rules are, but most of the time with the discretionary trust, there'll be provisions to say that it's really whatever the trustee determines. The trustee can has the flexibility to appoint capital to one and something else to another, for example. Okay, so that might be our way out. Yeah, well, in a situation where you have multiple beneficiaries, it may be a way out because there doesn't appear to be any sort of formula approach. There's nothing in the 99B which says that, well, if two-thirds of the trust is corpus and one-third isn't, then whatever you receive, two-thirds is not taxable and one-third is, for example. It just says if what you receive represents corpus and it's attributable to non-taxable amounts, then, then it's out. So I think in that type of situation, it is open to potentially distribute the excluded corpus to the Australian residents. I think you have to be quite careful doing that. You have to be quite cognizant of the trust deed and the drivers of all the beneficiaries and their tax profiles and all that sort of stuff. So it's not a simple exercise, but it is a potential avenue and, and sort of way out when there is a sizable amount of actual excluded corpus. Do you mind if I reduce the capital gain to two million because then my calculation, <laughs> I don't have any odd numbers. Let's say the capital gain is two million. The original house was 10 million. So that means you would distribute 4 million corpus to each of the uh, residents. So that's 8 million of the corpus. And then you would distribute the remaining 2 million of the corpus to the non-resident and then also the capital gain of 2 million to the non-resident. And so then based on this, nobody would pay any tax in Australia, correct? Yeah, I think that's how it would work. In that scenario, you'd have two resident Australian beneficiaries, so it's 8, 8 million. Yes, yeah, I think that would be how it would work. The other thing to be careful of is avoiding CTT event E8, which is one of those ones that no one can really remember off the top of their head. What a CGT event E8 is, is where you receive a payment for the disposal of the capital interest in a trust. So I think you just need to be careful to avoid that payment being uh, looked at as for the disposal of their interest in the trust. So in other words, they would still continue to be a beneficiary after the capital distribution were made. So let's say the estate didn't just have the house that we just established. You can avoid tax by distributing the corpus to the residents and the um, capital gain to the non-resident. Let's say in the estate you also had a business, let's say for another 10 million, and let's say that was sold also for 12 million. And so now... It's actually the same, like... It's the same principle. It doesn't matter what the asset is. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you're right. 
And so let's say the estate already sold that business and so then contributed 12 million to the uh, trust, then actually the full 12 million would then be corpus, correct? Uh, sorry, run through that again. Sorry. So in the first example with the house, the house went into the estate and then the estate passed it to the trust according to the will. So we established that part of it is corpus, part of it is capital gain, and we distributed in uneven parts so that the residents only receive corpus. But now in the estate is also a business, but rather passing the business on to the trust, the executor actually sells the business for 12 million. So now in the estate you have 12 million and then that 12 million gets passed on to the trust and then the trust distributes it. In that case, the full 12 million arriving in the trust from the estate would already arrive as corpus, correct? Yeah, correct. So it doesn't really matter what the asset actually is. For example, you could sell the property and buy something else and it could be many, many years after the corpus was actually injected that something actually comes out. And there's no requirement that it's the same asset or anything like that. So it's more about determining what value came into the foreign trust as a really a gift or inheritance and work out that number and that's the amount that's going to be excluded. I see. So could the second advice for the day be now? Before you listen to the second piece of advice for the day, here's a quick word from our sponsor DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Could the second advice for the day be to basically just distribute cash into a foreign trust that is then to be distributed to Australian beneficiaries. Because when you just distribute cash, then everything is corpus and then you distribute that. So could one say everything should stay in the estate until it's liquidated and then you just send the cash to the foreign trust and then that cash gets distributed and then everything is corpus. And that's especially important when you don't have a non-resident beneficiary, when everybody is a resident beneficiary, then you can't do this little trick that we did when you had the non-resident beneficiary. So hence, then you really should just distribute cash to the foreign trust. Is that basically the learning point? Uh, look, I'm not sure that works because if you say the will says that person passes away and all the assets to go to, go to a trust, for example, then... If you are applying Australian tax to that foreign trust, which is what you need to do, you would say that that trust would be absolutely entitled from the moment that possibly a probate's granted or the person dies. So if you kind of hold it in the estate, I'm not sure that makes any difference because really what you're looking at is would the trust have paid tax on it? If the trust was entitled to the asset straight away and didn't call on it, it would still be CGP in Australia if that residency assumption was applied. So I don't think that would make any difference. The alternative is to basically first the estate pays everything to a resident and then that resident puts the cash into the foreign trust and then it gets distributed to the uh, beneficiaries. But then the uh, resident might as well also pay directly to the beneficiaries. 
But then you have the odd question again, is the estate then actually a foreign trust that distributed? You know, if you first pay everything to one person and then they pass it on to Australian beneficiaries, then you could also argue, well, that was always intended for Australian beneficiaries. So it's actually the estate now that is is a foreign trust and is making distributions here, correct? Other sort of potential avenues of relief is if the beneficiary is not a resident of Australia at any time during the income year, uh, that the amounts received. So they might be a non-resident. They could even be a temporary resident. If we're talking about New Zealand, then a lot of New Zealanders in Australia are actually temporary residents because they're on special category visas. So you could look at, is the beneficiary actually a resident of Australia or are they a non-resident or perhaps they're a temporary resident? You could also look at the double tax agreement as well. There may be some relief there depending on what his situation is. Usually not a lot, but there can be unusual situations where you do have some relief in a, in a double tax agreement. So far, we only have distinguished between resident or foreign resident, not a resident. We haven't really looked at temporary resident. So in everything we discussed so far, a temporary resident is like a foreign resident, correct? Yeah. So in the context of trusts, there is no concept of temporary resident. Temporary resident is only a concept for individual residency. And a temporary resident is, it's an overlay of the resident, non-resident rules. So if you talk about individual residency, you firstly need to work out whether a person is a resident or non-resident under the normal residency rules. And then as a separate step, that that person may also be a temporary resident. And that's determined by visa status and the status of their spouse as well. And if they are a temporary resident, then there are a lot of Australia's taxing rights are turned off. So, for example, the transfer of trust rules don't apply. Uh, an amount received under Section 99B is not taxed in Australia if it's not sourced from Australian property. And the same with Section 97 as well. So it can be a way out. There are some differences between temporary resident and non-resident. So they're not exactly the same, but they're quite similar. So that means if somebody is just in, if you just look at a New Zealand trust now, if somebody is just a temporary resident but not an Australian citizen, then they don't have to worry about Section 99B or C Correct. or 97. Correct. Then all distributions from a New Zealand trust are basically tax-free in Australia. So long as it's not sourced from Australian property, or, or so long as the income doesn't have an Australian source, then yes. So, yes. Okay, good. So that means New Zealanders who are living in Australia as long as they are not Australian citizens, but just are on a temporary residency visa. I know there's not a temporary residency visa, but are on a visa that makes them temporary residents. Special category visa. Yeah, yeah special category visa. Yeah. As long as they are on that visa, they don't have to worry about, for example, inheritances that are distributed from a New Zealand estate, which is a form of trust. They don't have to worry about that because it's not taxable in Australia. So the spouse also is an Australian PR or citizen as well because it takes in the social security status of their spouse as well. So it's not just them, it's also their spouse. I see, and de facto spouse, I assume. Yeah. Good. So that means New Zealanders who are either together with another New Zealander and they're both temporary residents or they are single, they don't have to worry about any of these rules. But the moment a New Zealander is either an Australian citizen or their spouse is an Australian citizen or permanent resident in Australia, then these rules apply to them. Correct. Yeah. And just on that topic of New Zealanders for a second, 
one of the things that you don't get as a temporary resident is uh, non-residents and temporary residents are denied access to the general 50% CGT discount. This is away from trust, just talking about assets held by individuals for a second. And if you're a non-resident or a temporary resident, you're actually denied the general 50% CGT discount. The really interesting part about that, and it's sort of understand it for non-residents because generally the rules for a resident versus non-resident, a lot of the type of CGT is actually better being a resident. Like you get your main residence CGT exemption, you get your 50% CGT discount, so on and so forth. But the really interesting thing for the New Zealanders is there's actually a non-discrimination clause in the Australia-New Zealand double tax agreement, which says that neither country can discriminate against a national of the other country based on their citizenship. And this is the same clause that uh, struck down the backpack attacks, if you remember, uh, Addy's case and the backpack attacks. Yes. And also the New South Wales surcharges are for duty from certain countries. I think it was New Zealand, Finland, South Africa, Germany from memory. So there's an argument that actually that would be struck down as well for uh, New Zealanders or any other temporary resident that has that non-discrimination clause in their double tax agreement. This non-discrimination clause, would that protect us from 97, 99 B and C? Nah, nah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. So what would it protect us from in this scenario? It, it, would, it, it would protect, it would potentially give you back your general 50% CGT discount for a New Zealander, for example, who holds an investment property in Australia. That's the sort of scenario. Ah, oh, I see. Okay, good. So you basically stepped away from foreign trust and just looked at New Zealanders on temporary... Stepped away from foreign trust, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Now I'm busy. Yeah. But I have another question about foreign trust, and that is at the very beginning you discussed what turns a foreign trust into an Australian trust. And mm. you had said, for example, a resident is a trustee even if just for one day or if the CMC is in Australia. What about if the CMC or one of the trustees is a temporary resident? Would that already trigger a foreign trust turning into an Australian trust or that also seals it off as long as you're just a temporary resident, you can't trigger a foreign trust turning into an Australian trust? It's a really good question. It's something I've advised on recently. The definition just says resident, doesn't say anything about temporary resident. So I actually have a scenario where one of the trustees is a temporary resident, but they're also a resident and there is no compensation for that. Now, the person as a beneficiary may not be assessed on tax because it's 97 or 99B, but there are other situations where the trustee can actually still be assessed. So it doesn't give a carve out for that. And if a trust becomes a resident trust, there's a lot of other rules that apply. For example, if the trust accumulates its income, the trustees are taxed on it personally as, as individuals. And for CGT, any non-TAP assets would deemed to be acquired for market value as at the date that the trust becomes a resident trust. You also have the situation if you had a resident trust that sells non-TAP property and distributes that property to a foreign resident, the argument's been run that that foreign resident should be able to disregard Australian CGT. But because the trust, if, if you ever have a trust that's an Australian resident that sells an asset, the trustee is going to have to deal with CGT. It's not going to be exempt because it distribute the proceeds to a non-resident, for example. And the ACO's view on that, they go through it at length in taxation determination 2022 
slash 12 and 2022 slash 13. And it builds on two cases. One was called Green Sill and the other was called NM Martin Holdings, where taxpayers argued essentially just that you had Australian resident trust had shares in a, a company. The trust sold the shares and distributed the gain to a non-resident and tried to argue that the gain should be exempt from tax and all failed on that argument. So it's actually really significant becoming a resident trust. So that basically means that if you have an Australian trust that sells non-tap and then distributes it to a non-resident, it still becomes tainted as Australian income because it ran through the Australian trust. Correct. And if that was a dividend or some other income as an alternative, then you would have the normal source rules and you might have some withholding, but you'd have the normal source rules and, and, and all of that where where the trust might not pay any tax. Yes. You're saying that, for example, dividends, because often dividends are nana, that's what you're saying, correct? Foreign dividends are often nana. Yeah, and that treatment can sort of, you can get the look through of that treatment, but for CGT, you can't get the look through. That's the difference. Okay, so that's basically what we discussed at the start as well, that the rules are different for income and capital gains, yeah. that quite often you get a look through. Okay, good, perfect, got it. Last question, and it, it, it's a very practical question. If you go back to the example where we had three beneficiaries, capital gain from the house of two million, and then we decided to distribute just corpus to the residents to avoid Australian tax under 99B. Is there anything in the tax returns that shows all of this? Or is the tax return completely oblivious to this whole transaction? Or do you show something that where you then say, yeah, it's corpus and hence not under 99B? It's an excellent question. I'd need to check. I think either the tax return is going to just ask, did you receive any assessable income or did you receive anything? I have a feeling it asks, did you receive anything? But I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. I have a look. Yeah. There was a case a couple of years ago called Campbell and it was an AAT decision. And in that case, there was an individual who received some distributions from a New Zealand trust. They were trying to argue that the distributions were... Corpus. Corpus and excluded. And the audit apparently came through Austrac reportings of money transfers. And in that case, the taxpayer didn't respond to any of the notices until it got really serious, which was probably not the smartest thing to do. But they were unable to actually discharge that onus at the end of the day. The records were inconsistent and it wasn't clear whether the amounts were corpus or not. Because keep in mind, the taxpayer is going to have the onus of proof in actually discharging that burden of proof. So that's why records are pretty important. Yeah. Oh, there's one other issue that I... I don't know if I should mention it. It's, um, yeah, please do. Yeah, so maybe you have to splice this in later to the Section 99B stuff. So one other really interesting point about Section 99B is the wording of the section, it talks about an amount. It doesn't talk about a CGT asset, for example, or property. It says an amount. And why that could be relevant is that that reference, usually an amount. So an amount is paid, an amount is lent. Well, what's an amount that's paid? What's an amount that's lent? Well, it's cash, it's money. So what if what's done is a foreign trust distributes a property in specie, um, so as is to a, to a resident beneficiary? Yes. So for example, our house, let's say 
they don't have the beneficiary in, yeah, or even let's say they transferred this house to the three of them. And so the two beneficiaries just receive one third of the house each. Yeah. So subject to what I'm about to say, well, all, all we've talked about already would apply. Is it excluded? Corpus, all that sort of stuff. But the argument is that, well, the section refers to an amount paid, an amount lent. If a property is transferred in kind, is there an amount paid? Is there an amount lent? It's a, quite a compelling argument that the answer would be no, because I guess it's, well, what does an amount mean? Um, I think the normal ordinary interpretation of what an amount means is it's dollars. So that would mean the two Australian beneficiaries would receive the uh, property, their one third of the property each, basically tax-free, and then they would hold it. You kind of have to face the music when you sell your share, because then you have a capital gains tax event. Well, I'm not sure you would, because... Although it's non-tap. It's non-tap. So I think in specie distribution scenario, their cost base will be market value when they receive the asset, regardless of whether there's an assessment under 99B or anything else, because how they acquired it, it, there's no rollover that would apply. Okay. So it would be market value as cost base. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's at the time of death, because it comes from an estate or just in general? If an estate's not a resident, there's not going to be a rollover to be considered because all of the things will not be taxed in Australia anyway. I see. So if you receive a CGT asset as a gift from overseas... Mm. It enters the Australian tax system with a cost base at market value. That's what you're saying, correct? Yeah, yeah. And just on that amount point, there's a section of the 36 Act, which in general says that when you have consideration that's not in cash, you need to treat it as in cash. It's section 21 of the 36 Act. That's getting it situated. It's called like the non-cash benefit section, basically. So if we do a barter transaction, you've got to convert everything into cash. But- for it to apply, there needs to be consideration and there generally wouldn't be consideration for an in-specie uh, distribution of property. So I don't think the ACO will like the argument. Um, and you're probably going to be running the gauntlet a little bit on it, but I think that's got some legs to it. Okay, the argument is that you just have a cost base at market value, correct? That's the argument. Yeah, well, and no income. A 99B doesn't apply because you haven't received an amount. You've received a property or not. Just to ask you this very basic question. So any gifts or inheritances or anything you receive from overseas, which you didn't pay for, enter the Australian tax system at market value? Yes. Yeah. So for example, when you inherit a property, you know, let's say you're a migrant and you inherit a property from your parents overseas, that property will enter the Australian tax system at market value. Yeah, correct. covered quite a lot of ground. Um, Just to recap, firstly, you need to determine whether the trust is a foreign trust or a resident trust. Once you've made that determination and it's a a foreign trust, you then have to navigate three rules, your section 97, transfer trust rules, and section 99B, with 99B being the catch-all provision. And an amount's really only going to be excluded from 99B if it's excluded trust corpus. We covered a couple of issues about, well, what if there's a couple of resident beneficiaries and some non-resident beneficiaries and how to slice that? And also an interesting technical argument where an in-species property distribution was made. And we briefly touched on what are the consequences when a trust becomes a resident, particularly from a CGT perspective. 
Uh, we also dovetailed into non-residents and temporary residents for a little bit. And as you can see, it's an extremely complicated area whenever you're dealing with a foreign trust and, and Australian resident beneficiaries. Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne. So the big question is how the corpus is distributed. If corpus and gain are distributed equally, then the Australian residents have Section 99B income. Even if this resident has capital losses, they can't offset these losses against their Section 99B income. However, corpus and gain don't have to be distributed equally. The trust could distribute only corpus to the Australian residents and then gains and any remaining corpus to the New Zealand residents. And then you wouldn't have Section 99B income. But now, just quickly coming back to double tax agreements. We briefly touched on DTAs, but then didn't really drill deeper. So I emailed Andrew and asked, I forgot to ask you about double tax agreements. Do DTAs usually play a role in the taxation of foreign slash resident trusts? And if yes, in what way? Regarding which tax aspects do DTAs usually unhinge our Australian rules and bring in a different set of rules? So that was my question to Andrew, and Andrew very kindly wrote back and said the following. DTAs may play a role in the taxation of foreign resident trusts. It depends on the particular DTA and the circumstances, issues being considered. For example, a trust that is a resident of two countries. For example, a trust that is an Australian resident due to CMC being in Australia, but with a foreign registered company as corporate trustee. So that trust would be a tax resident of two countries. In that scenario, the trust will generally be treated as a resident of only one country under the tiebreaker rules in each DTA. However, please note that a trust isn't an individual or company, so their DTA needs to cover trusts in the first place for tiebreaker rules to apply. Depending on the DTA, if a trust is deemed to be a foreign trust, then some, all of Australia's taxing rights may be switched off. In relation to the S99B issue, there is unlikely to be relief if a beneficiary is only an Australia resident. Potentially, there might be relief if they were a resident of two countries with tiebreaker rules in the DTA. So the DTA will most likely only change things if you as the individual beneficiary are a resident of two countries and hence are protected by the DTA. If you're only a tax resident of Australia, then the DTA doesn't apply because That's not what the DTA is for. If you are just a resident of one country, then you don't need a double tax agreement. So this was our two-part mini-series about the taxation of foreign trusts in Australia. In the last episode, we focused on foreign trusts in general. And then in this episode, we used the example of a New Zealand trust to drill deeper into the taxation of foreign trusts in Australia. In the next episode, episode 401, I'm really sorry, I don't know yet what it will be. It most likely will be a question about trust distributions, but I don't want to tell you something incorrect. So apologies, I don't know yet. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.